I'd like to ask you a question this morning before we, we deal with um, Nehemiah chapter 2. And it's a wonderful chapter to, to look at in the Word of God. Who thinks in the congregation this morning that they could run a 42-kilometer marathon? If you think you can do it, put your hand up this morning. Any takers? I don't see any hands going up. Has anyone ever run a 42-kilometer marathon in their life? I, I know I haven't. I think the, the, the first I got was about 22 kilometers, and you know, I gave up after that. Let me ask you another question. This is a, a hypothetical situation. This is a supposed situation. Say at 21 kilometers from Kerrang, there was a, a vial of medicine or a, a, a container of, of, of medicine or tablets that you needed for your, your, your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife. None of you guys be saying that you wouldn't go. To come back and administer the medicine so that your son or daughter, wife or husband could, could live or recover. Who would try? And you have, you have, you have 24 hours to, to get there and get back. Who would give it a go if it meant the life or death situation? Would you try? Put your hand up if you try. I would try. If it was my little girl or my wife, I would give it a go. Now, whether you succeed or not, it's another question, but you would try, wouldn't you? Okay, what I'm really trying to say to you is this. If you have a purpose, sometimes if we have a purpose for something or a purpose for doing something, we're able to perform a lot better than if we don't have a purpose. If we don't have purpose, then we don't seem to be able to perform. And that's what I want to say about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man with a purpose. He was a man who had a purpose put in his heart by God. And because of that purpose, he was able to perform uh, things that probably a lot of people would have said is impossible. So one man in God, or one woman in God with a purpose, can achieve extraordinary results sometimes. And this is what I think Nehemiah uh, brings to our hearts this morning. Now I want you to see that, that this chapter is uh, a wonderful illustration of uh, purpose and prayer and then action. And, and it's, it's good to actually have a purpose, a purpose given by God for our life and for the church and for who we are. But it's also good to have that purpose surrounded in prayer. So we also are praying people as the people of God. But sometimes prayer needs to be put into action. We need to actually carry out a work for God. We need to get involved. And I remember um, a story about D.L. Moody, you know, the great preacher. He's on a transatlantic cruise and uh, going from uh, America to the United States or United States to UK or whatever. And uh, the, the sort of siren went off, and it was like the alert, and his, his uh, travel companion said, Mr. Moody, I think there might be a fire on board the ship. There's an alert or an alarm has gone off. And, he said, and his colleague said, oh, we should actually pray. 
And Moody says, well, you can pray if you like, but if there's a fire on board the ship, I'm going to a lifeboat. And you can see the point. You could pray, and that's good. But it took, the action that it took was to get into a lifeboat if there was danger on board a vessel. And so Nehemiah, although he was a man of prayer, and that's, that's good, he was also a man of action, and his actions were born, or they came out of his prayer and the purpose of God in his heart, living in his heart. God put the purpose in his heart. He prayed, and out of that came performance or action. So Nehemiah is about changing all this chaos that Jerusalem was in as the city to cosmos, to order. I want you to notice that this is about the return from the exile. A little bit of history. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king or uh, emperor, great king, uh, besieged the city of Jerusalem in 587 BC. And the city was broken into, the walls were broken down, and the city was burned by fire, and many people were taken captive. The temple was ransacked, and the vessels, the golden vessels from the, the Jerusalem temple were taken away to Babylon. And, and you read about Daniel, Daniel tells you about, the, you know, the, the, the Belshazzar's feast that night in chapter 5, I think it is, when they drunk from the golden vessels from the temple, and God, God wrote on the wall. Yeah, that sobered them up that particular night. Well, this is, this is about Nehemiah going back to Jerusalem in approximately 445 B.C. So quite a bit later, Nehemiah turns up to rebuild the city walls. The temple, the Jerusalem temple, was um, rebuilt by uh, a character in the Bible called Zerubbabel. That's a bit of a name to pronounce. And Ezra, which, who's mentioned in this book here, the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, who was a scribe of the law, he restored the word of God or the Torah, the law, to the people of Judah after they had come back to exile. So Zerubbabel was associated with rebuilding the temple, Ezra restoring the Torah, the law. But Nehemiah, who became the, the Babylonian governor of Jerusalem, or Judah, was responsible for rebuilding the city walls. And, and how long did he stay there? He stayed there from about 445 uh, B.C. until 433 B.C., approximately about 12 years or so, spent in the city. And how long did it take them to rebuild the walls? It took them 52 days. It was a real concerted effort, and they rebuilt the city walls in 52 days, not long after he arrived back. So this is about the exile. This is about returning from captivity, from Babylonian captivity, back to Jerusalem to rebuild for God. This was in the Persian period. At Artaxerxes, the first was the Persian king. Babylon had fallen to... Um, the Persian Empire and the Persian rule spread throughout the Middle East 
Persians were eventually defeated by Alexander the Great, of course. But in this period, we call it the second temple period because the first temple that was, was built by, by Solomon was the one that, were, that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Haggai and, and uh, Habakkuk and other of the Old Testament prophets, mentioned that the second temple would have been more glorious than the first temple that Solomon built. Why was that? Solomon's temple was one of the wonders of the world. This second temple in, in glory and in beauty didn't compare to what Solomon built. Yet, the prophet says that the glory of this later house, the second temple, will be greater than the glory of the former one, the one that Solomon built, the first temple. And I think it's for this reason that the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls and the reoccupation of the city by the people of Judah was in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, the coming of the one who would enter the temple in the Gospels and cleanse it. And when Solomon finished this first temple, what actually happened at the conclusion of the temple? Well, the Bible tells us that the glory of God, which the Hebrews called the Shekinah, the, the, dwell, the earth shining of the presence of God, filled the temple and filled the holy place that Solomon had built. And God's presence was there. But this same glory, this Shekinah, never came back to the second temple. That same manifestation of the fire and the glory that was associated with the presence of God in Solomon's temple was never here in the second temple rebuilt by Zerubbabel and beautified leader by Herod the Great. Why was it more glorious than the first? Simply this. There was a day that a man, a rabbi from Nazareth called Yeshua, called Jesus, entered into that temple who was no less than God amongst us, Emmanuel, God with us. And it wasn't the shining of the glory, the Shekinah, the manifestation of the presence of God, it was now God incarnate who walked into the second temple and who cleansed it and who prayed in it and who ministered in it, Jesus, the Son of God. And so all of this was in the purposes of God. God was moving nations and moving kings that his eternal purpose in Jesus, the Messiah, might be worked out not only for Judah or for Israel, but for the nations, for the Gentiles, for the world. And so therefore, what Nehemiah was about to do was in the purposes and plan of God so that there would be a day coming when Messiah Jesus would walk into this very city through these gates and through these walls into the temple that had been rebuilt in preparation and fulfillment of prophecy in God.
I want you to look with me, church, at this, that the walls that Nehemiah was going to repair and rebuild were, were symbols of security. The walls are a symbol of security in any city. If a city has no walls, it's open and it's laid uh, bare to the attack of the enemy. The walls were also a, a symbol of the sanctification and the separation of the people of God in their religious service to the true and the living God. The walls were a symbol of salvation and security. There was a kind of an identity associated with Jerusalem. It was the city of the great king. It was the city of the promised Messiah. It was the city of David. And so the temple and the city were linked together. That is the religious life of the people of Judah and the social life, the cultural life of the people was all intertwined together. And in other words, in this particular period, um, the people from Judah began to be known as Jews. And as such, they were associated with the practice of, of um, Judaism in the Second Temple period and the restoration of Torah and law into the city of Jerusalem. I want to stop at that particular point. And, and with, with Judaism, at least, um, you, you're supposed to live the Torah, that is, live out the law 24-7. You're supposed to live by the instruction that God gave to Moses. In other words, you, you ought to be a Jew every day. No less us as Christians. The Christians, or the disciples, were first called uh, Christians at Antioch in Asia Minor. Why was that? Paul says that and this was so because they lived in such a way that they reflected and they demonstrated the character of Christ. And so, as a Christian, I, I'm a Christian 24-7. I'm not just a, Christ, a Christian on Sunday morning at Kerang Presbyterian Church or at any other church. We're, we're Christians 24-7. Our cultural and our religious life are linked together, bound together in purpose to witness to the character and to the glory of Messiah Jesus. Now, I want you to notice this, that, that prayer is an important part of this chapter because Nehemiah at least prays here to the God of heaven, uh, it's mentioned in verse 4, when the king asked him, what is it you want? Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven. In chapter 1, there's a wonderful prayer. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. That's verse 4 in chapter 1. That's Nehemiah's humble prayer of confession and repentance. He stands in for the people. He intercedes for the people of God who had sinned. I ask you a question. Why was Jerusalem destroyed and burnt by fire? Why did God permit the Babylonian army to take the city? It's because Judah had sinned and disobeyed God. Judah had forgotten who the Lord was. Judah had forgotten the law. Judah had forgotten what was righteous and what was just. They had turned away from Yahweh the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. And God had said to them in the law that if you reject me and you turn away from me, I'll scatter you to the nations. And he did that. 
But there was the promise of restoration. And God said, in exile, when you're amongst the nations, if you turn your heart toward me, and if you repent and you call out to me, I will gather you and bring you back to the promised land. And this is what was happening here. There was a movement back to God. There was a repentance and a restoration took place. And what I want to say to you is that, you know, all of us sometimes lose the plot. Sometimes all of us get off the track. Sometimes we lose our walk with God and we get sidetracked and we fall and we get caught up in things or situations that we ought not to have ever been involved in. But you know, God isn't a God of condemnation. There is forgiveness with God. Our condemnation and our judgment was borne by Jesus on the cross fully and completely. And the Bible says to us as believers, if we confess our sin, he, the holy and the just one, is able to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what we do is we go back to where we went astray and we repent and God brings restoration into our lives and into our churches and into our homes and we move on with God. This is what's happening here on a bigger scale. This is happening on a national scale when the people of Judah had repented and realized that the condition of the city, the ruins And the wreckage and the devastation of Jerusalem was symbolic of their own spiritual departure and disobedience to God. And so isn't it interesting that in the physical state of Jerusalem was also reflective of the spiritual state of the people. And Nehemiah was a a man who had a vision to see something restored for the glory of God and to see lives restored and a city restored for the purposes of God. He prays to the God of heaven. And why does this particular uh, title be used of God? The God of heaven is indicative or at least brings to our hearts that the God that, that Nehemiah is praying to is the God who is in control. He's over all. And so the nations and the king and all the officials and all the governors and all the political systems that were in Persia are all under the authority and under the purpose of God to be worked out through Nehemiah. Now in verses 1 to 6, Nehemiah had the favor of the king. King looked on him very favorably. He was the cupbearer to the king. That's a very important position in in the Old Testament. You remember that uh, Joseph uh, encountered the cupbearer with the um, interpreted the dream for the cupbearer to Pharaoh in Egypt. So that was a very politically powerful place to be in. If you were the cupbearer to the king, you were you were quite a significant person and also verse 3 tells us the state of the city the city was in ruins but in verse 5 of our chapter we have the purpose we have the key verse given to us 
Nehemiah prays, and he says, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my fathers are buried, so, this is it, so that I can rebuild it. So ruins, in verse 3, are going to be rebuilt. That's the purpose that Nehemiah has put, that God has put in his heart. He's to become a man of restoration, a man who rebuilds. I want you to notice this, that he uses the, the, the personal pronoun. He says, so that I can rebuild it. And then he says later in the text that the gracious hand of my God was upon him. That's very, very personal. Nehemiah had a personal relationship with the true and the living God. And you see, what I want to say to you this morning is that I know we're a congregation, we're a family, but each one of us is responsible for our own personal relationship with God. Nehemiah had that that appreciation and that understanding that his purpose was to rebuild. And that was given to him personally by God. But he talks about the gracious hand of my God. And that's full, or that speaks to our hearts of a man who knew by experience that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob was his personal God. He just didn't know that intellectually. He knew it by experience. You think of, um, for example, Moses, who spent 40 years in the wilderness. It was there that Moses learned who God was. He personally developed his relationship with God to the point that he knew God. He knew who God was. And of course, the, the, the glory of God that was displayed to him at the burning bush was the place that he began to understand God's purpose for him to be a deliverer for the people of e- the people of Israel and Egypt. And then you think of, of, of David for a, for a moment. Before David became king, he spent many, many years as a shepherd boy tending the sheep of his father. And there he wrote and sung many psalms. And there he learned who God was. So this is personal experience with God that each of us can have. But all of that together brings us together in a common and a unified purpose to be the people of God in the world, to carry out the will of God. I want you to see this also that he was given protection. Um, there was a military escort given to him as he left um, Persia. As he left the king, he was given provisions. That is, he was given letters to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, for timber supplies. He was given letters of authority to the governors across the Euphrates River, all the way to Judah. 
So behind all of this, even though there's the human element, even though there are human actions and kings and governors and politics and it's all going on, behind it all is the will of God. And that's what Nehemiah knows and holds in his heart. So beneath the human action and beneath the human will is the divine hand of God working out his purposes through Nehemiah. Now, this lovely chapter is a, is a narrative. That is, it's a, it's a story. And though it's a historical record, it still comes across in a, in a kind of a story form to us. And any, any good story has, has different levels of the plot. The first level is the human level. It's about a man and the king, and a story about, about rebuilding, and rebuilding against all odds, and opposition, and overcoming hurdles to carry out a purpose. On the second level, it's more than that. It's more than an individual. It's more than about Nehemiah. It's about Judah. It's about the people of God. Back in, in the land of Judah, rebuilding the city for God. So it has a national and an international level with it. But, but over all of that, you see, on the third level, you see that this is about God himself. Because while there's individuals, and while there's national and international politics, and international actions being carried out between Persia and Judah, over all that is the hand of God bringing his purposes into the world for the coming of Messiah Jesus. Now notice this, that when we get down to verse 10, we have the first mention of opposition to the will of God. If God's will is to be carried out in the world or in my life, or in your life, there will inevitably, without doubt, be opposition. So with any good story, you, you have the plot, but there's also the problem that needs to be overcome. This, was, this is what makes it interesting. Verse 10 tells us that Sanballat and Tobiah, when they heard the official news that Nehemiah was going back to take care of the people of Israel and rebuild Jerusalem, they were very much disturbed. There was opposition to rebuilding anything for God. And, and as a congregation, if, if we purpose in our hearts to, to carry out the will of God that God has for us in, in, in the city of Karang to rebuild for him, to build for his glory, there will certainly be opposition. It may be from all sorts of strange quarters, but it's inevitable that Jesus experienced opposition when he came to do the will of God. Paul the Apostle did, and so will you and I. So it's something that we shouldn't be alarmed at. We should expect it. And the chapter will teach us how to deal with it as, as we go through. Now, with that opposition... Nehemiah responded to that 
in a very significant way. And so how we respond to those people or, or things that oppose the will of God is important. Nehemiah's response is mentioned to us in verse 11 and 12. This is what he does. When he gets the, the go-ahead from the king, verse 11 opens up a, a, a kind of a new section in the, in the chapter for us. He said, I went to Jerusalem. I went to Jerusalem. Knowing that when he got there, there would be those like Sambalat and Tobiah who would oppose him. He still went. So what did he do? He responded in faith. He knew in his heart that God had called him. He knew in his heart that God had placed a vision. He knew in his heart that God had placed faith. And so as a people for God, as a congregation, we need faith. We need to believe God. We need to have a a vision given to us as a people in this place, in this city, in this church for this time. We need to have a vision to see the world and to see Karang and to see this, this community as God sees it. And faith and vision go together. If I believe God, if I know that God has called me and if I know that God has sent me, I can believe him, I can trust him. And the God-given vision that God places in my heart for the lost or for the gospel or for the people of the city, I can hang on to no matter what the opposition. And faith and vision given by God produce action. What did Nehemiah do? He went to Jerusalem. He was a man of action. He went out and he carried out the will of God. When he got there, from verse 13 to 16, he surveyed the state and the situation of the destruction that had taken place back in 587 B.C. So all this time later, the city walls are still in ruin. And he became a man who understood the reality of the situation. He saw the devastation for what it was. He didn't try to make it better than it was. He didn't try to make it worse than it was. He just saw it for what it was. And in the midst of all of that devastation and all of the ruins and all of the problem of the opposition that he experienced, this is what I like about him. He he remained positive because he came to carry out the will of God. And he knew in his heart that if God called him, and he did, and God sent him to Jerusalem, and he did, that God would give him the resources and the ability and the faith to carry out his will. See, God will, will never ask you or I to do anything that he doesn't actually enable us to do. God's the great enabler. He's the one who gives us the ability to do what he calls us to do. But we need to receive that and act in that by faith. So after looking at the city and surveying it, going out 
at night, after three days, he went out, out by night and looked at all the wreckage and ruin. He came back, and it tells us that, the scripture tells us in verse 17 and 18, that he hadn't, at that point, said anything to anyone. God had placed it in his heart, but what was in his heart given by God, he had to share with others. He had to share with the people of God. And so he shared the vision, and he inspired the people of God. He was a man that wasn't just positive. He was inspirational. He was able to take God's purpose and share it in such a way that the people were inspired to get behind him and the vision became infectious and they caught the vision themselves and they came into line with God's thinking on, in the whole situation. Now what I'm saying here is this and this is the the main point that I want to leave, leave with you as a congregation. This is what I, I think the Lord would be saying to our hearts as a, as a congregation this morning. How many years had the people been sitting in the ruins of the city? Many, many years. Either they had no will or they had no vision they had no drive, but they were sitting in the ruins and the destruction of the past. And this is God's heart. God does not want us to remain in the ruins of the past. Now let me, let me explain that for our hearts this morning. This is really what I want to share with you. You see, sin and disobedience and unbelief by the people of Judah brought destruction into the city. And it brought the whole place to ruin. But our God is not a God who wants to leave us in the destruction and the ruins of sin and disobedience and unbelief. Our God is a God of restoration. Our God is a restorer. Our God is the God who rebuilds. And he rebuilds lives. And he rebuilds people to become something for his glory. And to carry out his purpose in the world. And that purpose is to glorify his name and to be a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the sin and the disobedience and the unbelief that has brought devastation into your life and my life at some point or another in the past, God does not want you to remain there. God wants to rebuild. Rebuild you, rebuild me, rebuild our congregation to become a people of the glory of God and a people of the covenant and a people of the book. And I want to inspire you this morning that you are the people of God. God has placed his name on you and God has put his purpose here in this congregation and in your hearts. And that purpose is for you to be the light of the glory of God to the 
community and to the people of Corang. Our God is not a God who wants us to remain and live in the ruins of the past. Rebuilding for the glory of God. And this is what Nehemiah says. I want you to see the significance of the man. He makes the point in verse 17. You see the trouble we are in? You see the trouble we are in? And I'm not, I'm not negative, and I, I don't want to be depressing, and I don't want to be down. But, you know, I would, I would love to say this to the General Assembly. As a church, you see the trouble we are in? And, and that, that's a call by, by the grace of God to rebuild, to rebuild our community and rebuild our church for the glory of the living God that we might become the people with a purpose in the world to share the light and the glory of Christ. And this is what he says. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall. And we will no longer be in disgrace. The potential in God for you and for me as a people is unlimited. We, we just need to come back to the place where our hearts are open and say, Lord, your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be carried out in my life personally and collectively as a congregation. Rebuild us for God. In verse 17, we open with, Then I said to them, that is the people of Judah. Look at verse 18. They replied. Nehemiah said, they replied. It's very much like the book of the Exodus. Exodus chapter 24, verse Seven, when Moses called the people of Israel to gather at the foot of Mount Sinai and the law had been given, this is what, and this is what Moses said. He says, I, I, I bring the law. I bring the Torah to you. This is what the people said. All that the Lord has said, that is in the law, we will do and be obedient what Moses said, and how they responded. Nehemiah speaks, and the people respond. And there's a kind of a parallel here between the restoration and the recreation of the people of God. 
paralleled with the covenant being cut or confirmed through Moses and Israel. And then the action begins. They begin the good work of rebuilding the city walls. I want you to see this for a moment. That in Nehemiah chapter 8, there is a kind of restoration of the law. Ezra the scribe reads the law to the people. That's when they build him a pulpit of wood. He stands up on it and he reads the law. And from morning to noon, the people listen to the law being read. And they understood clearly and they understood the sense that, was, that it was given. And Ezra explains, he's a, an interpreter, he's an exegete of the law of God. And the people understand what God requires. And they understand their failure and their sin. And they repent and they weep and they wail and they cry. And they come back to God. And the covenant is sort of confirmed and restored. And at that point, Nehemiah said, well, stop all the weeping and the wailing. Go away now and rejoice and celebrate because God has blessed you. The point I'm saying here is that when God brings us back to himself and when God restores us to himself, that's when true joy and true purpose is worked out in our lives. There's a kind of perpetual celebration that goes on in our hearts when we are living out the will of God day by day, moment by moment. Now, the, the story is interesting because when they get to this point and they start rebuilding, the two characters in verse 10, Sanballat and, and uh, Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, they begin to escalate or increase their opposition to Nehemiah. And the first thing that they do, they say, what is this you are doing? As if to disdain and mock them. And then they accuse them of rebelling against the king, which of course they weren't. Nehemiah had the authority of Artaxerxes to rebuild the city walls. But I want you to notice how we deal with opposition, how we deal with, with that which opposes our faith and that which opposes God's call in our life and in our churches to carry out as well. I answered them by saying, and, and first thing he, he does is he draws upon the authority that he comes in. The God of heaven will give us success. In other words, it doesn't matter what you say, Sanballat or Tobiah. Sanballat, I think his name is, means um, the moon god. Tobiah might be more of a Hebrewism where his name means uh, Yahweh is good or the goodness of Yahweh. But the point of all of this, it doesn't matter what their names are. Nehemiah knows that success and accomplishment will come from God himself. 
And then he, he not only, in this statement, expresses or confesses that his trust and his hope is founded in God, and that's the first thing with, with opposition. We have to confess the name of God and the confidence that we have in God. So we meet opposition by confessing God's name and expressing our confidence in that name that is able to overcome all other names. And then Nehemiah says, we, we his servants, will start rebuilding. This is identity. Nehemiah expresses the identity of himself and his people as that of the servants of God. And I want you to take this away with you today. You're, you, you are a servant of, of the true and the living God. That's your identity. That's who you are. You, you belong to the God of heaven. That's the one in whom you place your trust and your faith. But your identity as a person, who you are in the world and who you are at home or at work or wherever it may be, is wrapped up in the fact that you're a servant of the true and living God. And Nehemiah knows that his God is more than able for the task. In other words, he is the God who is able to deal with every situation. If we walk in his will, and if we carry out his purpose, and if we become those who live to serve him, then no matter what opposes us, whether it's spiritual or, or whether it's physical or whatever it might be, and I think that Luther's hymn, as we sung it, is, is an example of that kind of faith, that if it were not for the right man, the man of God's own choosing being on our side. That is Jesus Christ. Then we would have no success. But we do have success. We have success in Christ. And Jesus said this, and this is what I want to encourage you with. That he said, upon this rock, the rock of his truth and his teaching and himself. Upon this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of, of Hades, or the gates of hell, the authority of hell, will not prevail against it. Now that's the promise of God. So as the people of God, if we set our hearts to rebuild and become those who are called with a purpose to glorify Christ in this city, there will nothing, there will be nothing that will prevent us or stop us from carrying out the will of God because God has decreed it and his will will be done. Now I want you to take encouragement from, from this this morning because I know that what's happened up here in terms of, of the floods and, and everything that's come about and, and whether there's unrest that has generated through all of the upheaval that's happened to you as a community, um, I can't even begin to imagine what, what that might be. 
But I know this, that the Lord our God is a God who restores and a God who rebuilds. And as a congregation, I encourage you to personally and and privately and collectively confess that you're willing to do the will of God. That's where it all starts, if we're willing to do the will of God. Nehemiah was. And what a change that, that brought into his experience. And his actions and his ministry echoed down through the centuries until Jesus, the Messiah, entered through the very walls and gates that he rebuilt in fulfillment of the, greatest, the great purpose of God that Jesus would become the Savior of the world. May God bless this to our hearts and may his peace and his grace be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.